This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Powers and Principalities, a show about the systems and institutions of white evangelical influence in America and the world. I'm your host, Blake Chastain, and this is Season 2. Season 1, published in the fall of 2020, was all about white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. Season 2 focuses on white evangelicalism and media. This is Episode 1. Dating all the way back to at least the 19th century, the various groups we now refer to as white evangelicals have always been early adapters of new media formats, whether it's books, radio, TV, film, or any of their digital equivalents like podcasting, YouTube, live streaming, or any element of influencer culture. Evangelicals are always at the forefront of using new technologies to spread their so-called old-time religion. Ultimately, that perennial evangelical impulse is expressed as a desire to tell the good news. The same good news that, etymologically speaking, the same good news that, etymologically speaking, is the origin of the term evangelical, meaning messenger, or one who announces. And that good news is found in the Bible. In order to share that news, it is necessary to share the Bible. And white evangelicals have built many institutions and businesses in order to do just that. The most recent and high profile of these institutions is the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And that's where this season begins. My guests for this episode are Kevin Kincannon and Jill Hicks-Keaton, authors of the new book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? The Museum of the Bible and the Politics of Interpretation. Their book takes a critical look at the Museum of the Bible and the story it is hoping to tell about the Bible. As you'll hear, it is a very particular perspective on the Bible, and it is trying to legitimate that perspective on the national scale. By placing the Museum of the Bible in the long lineage of other evangelical institutions established with similar ends, Concanon and Hicks-Keaton provide a necessary critique of this most recent attempt to prioritize and prefer the evangelical perspective to the detriment of all others who lay similar claim to the scriptures. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. One quick programming note, this season will be added to more sporadically than season one. This is part of an, an ongoing effort on my part to publish conversations that I consider valuable to the public, but it is produced as I am able. If you want to help me make this work more sustainable, you can do so directly at postevangelicalpost.com. The Postevangelical Post is the home of both Powers and Principalities, as well as my long-running podcast, Exvangelical, where this show focuses on systems and institutions. Exvangelical focuses on the stories of individuals who have left white evangelicalism and similar high-demand religions. You can subscribe to the Post-Evangelical Post for free or at 4 6 or $8 a month and get ad-free podcast feeds, subscriber-only content, and more. I donate 25% of net proceeds to White Homework and their Religious Exemption Accountability Project, two organizations that help those harmed by white evangelicalism. You can learn more about this at postevangelicalpost.com slash support.
If you're on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain and on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at BRChastain underscore. This episode was produced by Podcat Audio. The theme song was created and produced by Jacob Lewis. Let's get into it. My guests today are Kevin Kincannon and Jill Hicks-Keaton. They are the co-authors of a new book called Does Scripture Speak for Itself? The Museum of the Bible and the Politics of Interpretation. Jill and Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. Uh, your book is is really, really fascinating, and I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to talk to you about this book. But really, in order to to enter into this discussion, which your your book is primarily a is about the the museum of the bible which is a new new museum that has prime real estate in the nation's capital and as your book gets into it it has a particular perspective about the bible but before we get into that what i would be really interested to learn is what drew you as professional scholars to this particular field of study of biblical studies Jill, let's, I'd love to hear from you first, and I'd love to hear from both of you on, in this regard. Sure. Well, so I'm currently a professor at the University of Oklahoma, but prior to coming here, I did a PhD in New Testament at Duke and went to Baylor for undergrad. So I was raised in and uh, was very, I'm very familiar with from a personal standpoint, white evangelical Christianity in the U.S., and I went into academia in part because once I got to Baylor thinking I was going to be a minister, academia was, uh, for a number of structural reasons, more open to me because I am a woman. But I, I came to this field out of an interest in historicizing the texts that are now in the Bible. I found it really exciting to learn about the historical circumstances that gave rise to the texts that are now biblical. And part of the reason is because I was inundated with the Bible. I knew the Bible well. It conditioned the structures and patterns of my life. And, and it was really exciting to me to be able to study it as a professional. That's very fascinating. Kevin, how about you? What drew you to? Yeah, so I'm I'm a professor of religion at the University of Southern California. And before that, I worked at a number of other uh, universities and did my PhD uh, at at Harvard at Harvard uh, in the early 2000s, and I think that probably a lot of my story is similar to to Jill's story. I'm a slightly more I have a slightly more peripatetic religious history of kind of bouncing between a bunch of different forms of Christianity. But I as well got hooked early on, and this is something that I I wrote about in a book that was published last year called Profaning Paul. I, I got hooked on historicizing particularly the the letters of Paul 
and got really invested in thinking about how a certain kind of historicized approach to those New Testament documents might be, I don't know, transgressively interesting for contemporary Christians. And the my my work over the course of the last 15 or so years has shifted quite a lot, and I'm no longer particularly interested in those kinds of uh, historicizing maneuvers. I got invested in a whole bunch of different kinds of ways of doing history. And now I'm more interested in why people like me were interested in that sort of thing in the first place. Like, what is it about taking this modern conceptual and epistemic apparatus of historical criticism, which is the fancy weird word that biblical scholars use for doing history, why that is appealing to people in the first place? What is it that that does for for contemporary readers of the of Christian texts? And I I think that because we have both sort of shifted towards wanting to intellectually engage with how people make the Bible scriptural and authoritative, that this is why we were uh, in part drawn to study the Museum of the Bible, uh, which is a modern institution rather than something from antiquity. Right, right. You both used an, a word that I that I would I think would be helpful to expand on a little bit. You both used the word historicizing when you were describing your own sort of approach and evolution as scholars and readers and people. Could you e- expand on that a little bit and what you mean by that by that term historicizing of the biblical text? Sure, I I can take that. So, one of the one of the things that I remember when I first started going to to Protestant churches as a young person, that for the most part, the way in which I was told that one read should read the Bible is what we would now call inductive biblical reading. Like you open your Bible, you read it, you sort of figure out what the text is saying to you directly. And that's a complicated process because um, you're reading through things that are like lists of kings and 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 rituals and apocalyptic visions and that sort of thing. But there's a kind of inductive logic of biblical reading and uh, a historical or historicizing reading is one that says that these texts were produced at a particular time by certain people within a particular historical cultural milieu, and that that context is the, in some ways, the right way to read those texts, and that the meaning of those uh, the meaning of of those biblical texts have to be contextualized in order to speak in the way that they were intended to speak. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking back to my to my own to my I went to a Christian college, an evangelical Christian college, and uh, was a biblical literature major for for much of that tenure. I ended up changing majors and only graduated with the minor, but taking courses like inductive Bible study and a couple of years of undergraduate Greek. They did, you know, emphasize there that the original context was was important to understand and uh, th- that wasn't necessarily something that was that was carried over amongst all the professors but some of the more rigorous professors i think to use them to use that term i think had that had that approach as well thank you for that for that extra detail expanding on that a little bit i am as in the biblical studies field how do you as scholars, and you can t- I certainly answer this uh, as how how you approach this or how you think the overall field approaches this, but how is the Bible approached as as a text and how is that sort of different 
then maybe the person that might be reading this more devotionally or someone that is engaging with a biblical text in a, a church setting. I would imagine that that sometimes might make make your work a little more difficult to present to a more general audience. But as as uh, members of this particular field of study, how is how how are these texts approached? So I'm going to answer this one because I both grew up in and now teach in the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. And so this is a I have to think a lot in my teaching in Oklahoma about how to help students who, for the most part, are really familiar with with devotional reading of the Bible. Um, and in some cases, engage in it regularly themselves to help them think differently about what kinds of questions to ask of the Bible. So shifting from what can I get out of this text? What is being communicated to me by an invisible deity, okay, which they call God? Shift that to questions that can be answered with observable data that could be invoked reasonably in any other history classroom. Okay, so it evidence that is on on the page or in the world rather than something that is being communicated individually to a person that can't be tested by others. And so that, you know, thinking about the Bible as as a library of ancient texts that were produced by particular people in places in specific places in particular times, it trying to figure out who those people were and why they put these texts together and how they made these texts authoritative and what difference that made in their lives. That's a reconstructive project that does not involve one's own, or it does not involve principally one's own communication or connection to a deity or a God through the text itself. And one of the things that, that, that biblical scholars, like, I mean, we think should be doing in the classroom is, is doing that, which is in some sense, a, an attempt to get people to empathize with and to think outside of their own context to try to imagine how other people live their lives and think about the world and develop worldviews different from their own. But one of the things that we've noticed about how our field operates is that that historical critics of the Bible, academic biblical scholars, often have have decide, have come to function as people who gatekeep on how the Bible can be made meaningful how meaning can be drawn out of it, which is to say that it takes a certain amount of education and it takes a lot of training to be able to say, well, this is how people would have done things in the first century. And to make that claim is a a claim to power over the text. And one of the things that has shifted for us, and this is part of what has infused our work that is in this book, is that we are we think that biblical scholarship also needs to move away from gatekeeping the first century context of the New Testament and try and turn the analytical tools that we have, this attempt, this ability to historicize texts onto the history of the Bible itself. So to look not just at what did the Bible authors in the first century mean and or intend to mean in the documents that we can sort of hypothetically date to that period, but what were Christians doing with biblical texts materially, uh, ritually, theologically um, at various time periods and in different places to look at the history of the Bible as a series of 
multiple Bibles being produced over and over again. And we use this fancy word in the book called scripturalization, which we draw from the work of a scholar named Vincent Wimbush, who has been really instrumental in helping us think through some of these issues, uh, which is to say that we attend, we try to attend to how do people make biblical text scriptural for themselves and their community over and over again in a process that involves them being reworked and redone and remade and reinterpreted so that they continue to be scripture even as their meanings change and even as their value or their role within a community changes. One of the failures of historical criticism as a primary optic of recontextualizing biblical texts, and we say this in the book, is that it considers context without the consequences. (laughs) And so Historical critics are often arguing about history without any consideration for ethics or how viewing the Bible as authoritative has effects on other people, often who are historically marginalized uh, or or disempowered. And so as much as historical criticism is viewing the Bible this way is useful in a classroom for helping students who are used to reading the Bible devotionally think a different way about what this text is and how it can function. It's not, we think, the most ethical way uh, or the the only, the way that is going to sort of save us from the consequences of authoritative biblicism. That's really interesting. It, it did make me think of, of terms that float around in my head when I think about these things like like this uh, exegesis versus hermeneutics type <laughs> language that was that was in my my undergrad of like exegesis is when you're when you're talking about all these historical things and hermeneutics is another thing where you're applying it to everyday life but but that's not as necessarily and I don't necessarily think that it's it directly maps to that but it sort of invokes that maybe that that's sort of always been this false dichotomy. <laughs> What tends to happen is that because people see themselves as doing dispassionate history, so what you're, what you're describing as, I think it was exegesis, mm-hmm. uh, and then sort of that comes to sanction the ethical application as also dispassionate or disinterested, when in fact that the history that's being done is productive, right? It is um, affirming certain presence. It's certifying presence that people want to have uh, to be true. And often that is defending their own positions of power. Does that map onto your experience, Blake? To a a degree, though, I don't necessarily think it was, it was not really explicitly stated, you know, that, that certainly, but those, but the sorts of things that, that's, we, that, you know, are now being entering certain specialized nomenclatures, even ones that are exist online, like the terms Christian supremacy, like, like those things, identifying it as such, that was never, it was sort of a given. (laughs) And that in in many of those spaces, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But your, your book really in the introduction that you do a couple of things that are harder to delineate when they're actually spoken out loud, <laughs> in particular, you you distinguish between the capital B Bible and more lowercase Bibles. One is this sort of mythic idealized thing. For for example, just just to quote from the introduction, you say the Bible, capital B Bible, does not exist. There are only lowercase Bibles. A little further on, you say the Bible, the capital B 
capital B Bible does exist in the realm of the imagination. I'm sure that like for folks who do come from a more from a more devotional understanding, that in and of itself will be a challenging thing to to accept. But I mean, I I I'm I'm in agreement with you about that and how how the Bible is formed and how all these texts were collated and organized and and much of your book is actually about how you extend this for further and talk about how the Museum of the Bible in particular is concerned about a white evangelical Bible. And that's all lowercase in this case, in this in this spoken out sentence. But I'd I'd love to hear you sort of discuss the significance of that decision and that sort of interpretive lens and and you know, one might say narrative or agenda that this particular institution is bringing to bear. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, you know, I mean, this, as, as you know, this is sort of a good Bible 101 moment where where we should emphasize that the Bible is a collection of texts and it was collected uh, in antiquity and recollected and reorganized and edited over time. And so there really has never been from antiquity to the present a single Bible. Because even when there get to be sort of more fixed lists or even more consistent manuscript traditions around biblical texts, there are different Bible collections that are used by different kinds of Christians around the world today. And there are also different Bibles that are used by Christians around the world, different translations. But even down to the level of the edition of the text that you have in front of you, every Bible is a different Bible. Because the Bible that you might hold in your hand that you that was given to you as a gift, maybe by a loved one that you've carried to church or gone on like youth group retreats with, that you've written notes in, that Bible carries with it a whole set of feelings and memories and histories. And, um, and those all inform how you engage with the written text that's on the page. So there, there are as many Bibles as there are printed Bibles, and there are more than that. And that the Bible itself, with a capital B, is really just this kind of cultural icon, a construct that we invent to tie all those, all that plurality together into one single thing. It's a kind of Platonic notion of the form. There is a form of the Bible that exists in like the divine world, and then there are the various changeable, mutable Bibles that exist in in historical time. And so, our one of the points that we think needs to be made for academics but also for people who are who are are people who care about bibles uh, is that every bible is different every bible has a story and every bible can be historicized in the sense that it, it can be its history and its context and its location and how it operates can be interpreted uh, and that's that's what we're doing with this category of the white evangelical bible is that we're talking about the a kind of bible that is constructed within a particular sect of American Christianity, and that has at present a great an outsized influence in our politics and in our cultural life. The way that I teach this distinction to my students between Big B Bible, which is imaginary social construct, and material Bibles, little b, is that I take particular Bibles into the classroom and put people in groups and have them explain or come up with reasons that this is a Bible. Like, what makes this a Bible? And, uh, of course, the Bibles that I've distributed to them are all very different. There is a Tanakh, Jewish Bible. There is a 
a Christian New Testament uh, that doesn't have the Old Testament and uh, and so forth. And but then I also bring in the Jerky Bible, okay, which is a book where you learn all about how to make beef jerky. <laughs> and, um, and the point is that we all are bringing this idea of Big B Bible to the table. And that's why the Jerky Bible, the authors of the Jerky Bible, chose the word Bible to put on the front because they wanted to convey to potential buyers that, hey, this is your you know, one-stop shop to learn all things about jerky. This is an authoritative guide. This is, you know, the place to come to learn about whatever this is. So the idea is that those adjectives about beef jerky that are attached to this jerky Bible tend to represent the adjectives that people associate with the word Bible when it's a, when it's the imaginary social construct, the cultural icon, because none of those Bibles that I distribute to the students are actually the Bible. And in our early work on the museum, we were really concerned about sort of teaching people, hey, this, this museum of the Bible, that definite article is a problem because there's no such thing as the Bible. And over time, it became more interesting to us to think about not challenging them, hey, there's no the Bible, but instead moving towards, okay, they're producing a particular Bible. Let's describe what that Bible is like. And so we call it the white evangelical Bible because it's a Bible uh, principally that works to preserve the or fight for the authority and preserve the influence of white evangelicals in the United States. Right. When one thing it makes me think of from my own from my own story is I was a very evangelical teenager and I worked in a Christian bookstore. I was uh, this group, this a small place called a uh, smaller franchise called Limestone Books that was in sort of the Midwest. And uh, this particular bookstore was in a mall and it was in the Chicago suburbs, which has a pretty uh, a sizable Catholic population. And the fact that it was in a mall and it was a bookstore, people would come in, Catholics would come in looking for christening gifts, first communion gifts. And we had the smallest little section dedicated to sort of Catholic gift Bibles, uh, even though we had a whole, all uh, all manner of, of other Bibles that are more geared towards the evangelical, non-denominational type of market you know, NIV, NLT, NASB Bibles, like up and down the line. But for those, those, those ones that had the Apocrypha, had the Catholic, had the Catholic version of the Bible, those were harder to find at the store that sold Bibles and other Christian living materials. So to your point that this, uh, it is certainly presented as a settled issue and an agreed upon thing, but it is very much not that. <laughs> that makes sense to me, by the way, that there would be a fewer Catholic Bibles on offer there in part, not only because it's a Protestant bookstore, but also because Catholics engage, engage the Bible differently than Protestants. And so the, you know, Protestants who are reading the Bible devotionally in their what, what, I mean, do people still call it quiet time? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Quiet time. Um, quiet sure. time. Yeah. That's like a very Protestant evangelical thing to do. 
Whereas, you know, people who are Catholic are not, there's not that same like sort of push to be in the Bible every day. This is how you're living. This is how you're spending your time is reading the Bible. In your introduction, you also talk about how you as scholars are also stakeholders in this conversation. I found that to be another sort of critical and uh, essential thing to be added there. Uh, could you start, um, Jill, just by talking about why it's valuable for non-evangelicals to engage with this particular presentation of the Bible in this place called the Museum of the Bible? And again, in D.C., close to all of these other storied museums and institutions. Yeah. So the Museum of the Bible, as you say, it's in the heart of American power and it is founded and funded by the evangelical Green family who reside in the state that I now call home, who have also engaged in political activism that is associated with conservative causes. Mm-hmm. And so the the production of the particular Bible that is good for white evangelicals in the United States in the Capitol affects other people in the sense that this is a platform for publicizing white evangelical views of not only the Bible, but also of politics. And so one of the ways that the museum functions is it's a place where white evangelicalism can gain or attempt to gain respectability for political positions that might otherwise make people raise eyebrows because of their association with conservative Christian political policies. And and in a time when white evangelicals really, like they have an outsized influence in the political sphere, it's important to be paying attention to the institutions that are producing the authority by which they're making these claims and that are making these claims feel and seem normative for a larger public when when they don't have to be and themselves can be historicized. Kevin, any any anything else to build upon there? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, part of what changed for us as we like engaged with this museum over time is that initially we saw ourselves in that gatekeeper function that where we were kind of arguing about, well, does this museum get its history right? Is it doing a good job? Is it is it giving a kind of evangelical reading of the history of the Bible? And the thing about the thing about being a historian of early Christianity is that we don't have a great deal of evidence. We don't really have a lot of material to work with. And so a lot of the histories that we tell about the earliest Christians and their texts are largely kind of made up. I mean, some of my some of my colleagues may not like this, but we 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 tell stories with the fragments of stuff that we have. And you can tell those stories in a lot of different ways. And this is, you know, you're, you you mentioned that in your in your undergraduate degree at a Christian college, you were also learning how to historically contextualize the Bible. And so there are a lot of conservative evangelical ways to historicize the Bible, and there are ways of historicizing the Bible that go in a completely different direction, that do not sort of impose or bring in certain kinds of theological assumptions and whatever. But the the wide array of approaches to how one can historicize the story of the Bible means that 
if you go into a room and you fight with the people who are working at the Museum of the Bible or the scholars that they have hired to work on their exhibits, what you end up doing is you're arguing over whose history is right. And in a lot of ways, you know, I would say that my history is more accurate than theirs, but that's a fight that no one, that I don't win. <laughs> you know, like it's a fight where, where we're just fighting over stuff that neither of us can really prove. And so we found that what we what was happening was that people were saying, well, why don't why don't we try to make them better, or why don't we work with them, and why don't we um, why don't we see them as as conversation partners, and ignoring the fact that there's a huge amount of money, politic, political orientation, and and a larger project behind this whole endeavor. And so it seemed to us that instead of fighting with them on the same terrain, the better the better course of action and the more responsible thing to do would be to say, how do we understand what's actually, how this is operating? Like, how do we look at this museum as as a machine that is producing a Bible? And they may make arguments that are historicizing in orientation. They may make other kinds of arguments that are rooted in a different set of ways of producing knowledge about the Bible. But instead of trying to fight with them about getting it right or wrong, why don't we just analyze how this works? And what we found was that this museum works as a, 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 a an embodied, viscerally emotional, affective Bible that resonates with the things that white evangelicals have been saying about their Bible for a long time. And it and one of the things that we do in chapter one is to note that this is one of a whole host of institutions that white evangelical capital has built over the course of the last century and more to take what was a pretty fringe notion about the Bible and a fringe set of theological ideas, fringe within the larger panoply of American Protestantism or world Christianity, and to make it and to resonate it and amplify it so loudly that if you ask people who are not Christian in the American public sphere, like what do Christians believe, typically they associate Christian belief with what white evangelicals believe. And so the museum, we treat it as part of a larger network of institutions that are that are making this Bible seem self-evident as what the Bible is. But we're we're supposed to be explaining why we're stakeholders. <laughs> no, but I, I, you, I, I, Wait, I but I, I have something to add on that. If I, I can. Sure, sure, absolutely. So I mean, coming back to the distinction between Big B Bible and Little B Bible. If the Bible, little b Bible, that is being produced and amplified and publicized by this museum becomes authoritative in -hmm. the United States, I feel worried about that for people, humans. So, like, I'm a stakeholder (laughs) in part because I'm a human in the United States. Um, Because the Bible that they're producing is Christian nationalist, white supremacist, anti-feminist, colonialist, and aligns with a lot of politics and ethics that that I am not on board with. Um, And so in that sense, we're critics of, uh, well, I won't speak for you, Kevin, but I think this is true. We say we are critics in the book, but it's, it's, I think that we are critics of this political agenda and, and therefore concerned in some ways about the collapsing of the potential collapsing of the distinction between the little B Bible in this museum with big B Bible, which people see as this authoritative document that should be a guide for living. Right. And 
And I would right. I would echo that yes, I also share those same ethical concerns that that Jill does. And, and I would note that that like there is a there is a discourse about what it means to be a critic in evangelical culture. To be a critic is to is to is to be not on board with the project, to be a kind of outsider. Like if you're if you're critical, that sort of it's that has a negative connotation to it. And I think when we when we talk about what it means to be a critic, it means that yes, we have our ethical stance and we know where we stand on things and what we believe and what we think. But also to be a critic means you have to actually understand how something works to be mm -hmm. able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so to critique here is not just saying it's bad. And and that's not that's not what the point of this book is. The point is to understand how it works. Right. Now, we want to know how it works so that we can, you know, intervene in that. When you know how, when you know how a, a motor works, you know how to either fix it or you also know how to break it. Or right. trash it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the thing is, anyway. like, uh, we really, I mean, we're really not fans of like criticism for criticism's sake. To be to be snarky, we're not really here to be snarky about this. We're not really here to sort of cut down people's systems of belief. We want to understand them in an, in an empathetic way and in a, a an intelligent and nuanced way. Even if at the end of the day, we are also like not on board with that project. Right. Yeah. And I, I you you did indicate that that to be a critic is is to be you know. To invite yourself to severe consequences or potential severe consequences within evangelical spaces. I mean, speaking as someone in that in in that sort of ecosystem, uh, my you know my place in talking about evangelical things and and using that terminology and everything else uh, that that is absolutely true. People ha come into consequences, and then in general within evangelicalism, if you take a strong enough stance, then oftentimes you either fall on deaf ears or are either shown the door or your sphere of influence is rapidly reduced. So there that that is a very good point. Uh, Jill, I, I know what you <laughs> I see you. Sorry. Go ahead, Jill. Sorry. I'm just excited to say that it occurred to me while Kevin was talking that that is is, you know, very analogous to the work that Exvangelical is doing. I wouldn't describe our project as exvangelical because we're not working within evangelicalism necessarily, but in terms of like a method of wanting to understand how something works, it's really similar to exvangelicals who are, I mean, the, the hot term is like deconstruction, but mm -hmm. ultimately what that is, is trying to understand how the intellectual, ethical, affective framework works. Yes. Um, I remember yes. when I discovered the exvangelical hashtag and was just, I mean, I got sucked in for hours and hours on Twitter reading this exvangelical uh, <laughs> right. um, hashtag. It was absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. And it, I mean, to me, that is that speaks to that speaks to something a little. And I want to I do want to to return to the work of your book, but just to talk about that a little bit, I do think that speaks to the effectiveness of of critique of ev white evangelicalism that is informed and has both lived experience as well as significant study behind it exvangelical itself and in my mind primarily primarily functions as like and at this point as a counterpublic 
It's something that is countering the more dominant narrative, the one that is being represented by something like the Museum of the Bible that has hundreds of millions of dollars of funding. This is something that people are bringing and expressing their own stories and sharing their own slices of expertise about their lived experience and whatever else they've learned with a with a, you know an unclear audience because it's just being published to the internet and who knows uh, what that means. But that is very by and large part of part of that work. And one of the things that makes that process of deconstruction that you mentioned, Jill, very confusing and confounding for people is when they have been instructed in white evangelical teachings and practices and other also other types of other types of uh, religion. But speaking specifically about white evangelicalism, the sorts of teachings and practices that are inculcated in young people and people of all ages, once it you know brushes up against a degree of outside perspective, cognitive dissonance starts to kick in, and then then that leads to a lot of of questioning and 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 all of that. And that's but the Museum of the Bible is very much a project of building up that particular point of view. So I'm going to use that as a segue. <laughs> and I actually wanted to go back to one one thing you mentioned, Kevin, about how there were all these other institutions and structures that were built in the 19th and 20th centuries that the Green family, who is the primary primary donors and people that have envisioned this, have really you placed them in that line. But why... Why is the question of all that that long history over a century of investment and funding and media creation and institution building so integral to understanding the Museum of the Bible today? So I think you know it's it's a great question, and I, I think that part of why it's it's important to take tackle that question and to and to think about it in these terms is partly uh, partly a notion of how we understand what it means to talk about evangelicalism or or religion more broadly that by and large we in the united states have a kind of popular notion of religion as like beliefs that people have and that we have a we have a kind of facile simplistic notion that people have these beliefs and they act because of those beliefs and that's that's typically how we cover religion in, in, in journalistic contexts. It's often how religion is treated in some academic contexts. And it's certainly a way in which people talk about religion more broadly. And one of the things that we want to emphasize in the book, and as part of a larger critique within the study of both American religion and religion more broadly, is that there are material conditions that pertain to the formation of those beliefs in the first place. And one of the things that we don't often talk about with regard to religion, except in situations where we've already defined the group as bad, is we don't talk about money. And we talk, we're, we're fine talking about money when it comes to like saying how televangelists are awful because they always ask for money. But what we don't <laughs> talk about very much is how money is used to shape what we think and, and believe, right? We might feel comfortable talking about, say, Rupert Murdoch's Fox News empire and shaping a whole dis a whole context of discourse, um, but we usually give religion a little bit of space on that front to talk about to 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 not be sort of seen as crassly materialistic. But if you look at the history of what we would call the sect of white evangelicalism, 
that that sect has come together, grown, developed, crystallized at various points, and expanded its reach by uh, developing institutional networks that that have relied on capital from white evangelical or conservative Protestant industrialists. And we trace some of this. There's there's a very long history of this, and we use we use a couple examples in the book. We talk about people like Lyman Stewart, who built both Biola here in Southern California um, with his oil money, um, but also invested in the production of the Fundamentals, which was really the kind of first national mailing network of conservative Protestants um, that gave kind of a, an identity to what ended up becoming the fundamentalist movement. Talk about J. Howard Pugh, whose family now underwrites a lot of NPR, but back in the day um, was involved in bringing together conservative Protestants with business leaders and with libertarian economists to kind of create the conditions which eventually lead to that, the the welding together of those interests in our contemporary politics, formation of news networks, podcast networks now, radio networks, television networks, Christian um, academic institutions, one thinks of like Oral Roberts University or the Moody, Moody Bible Institute. All of these institutions, they work, they work together and they work individually. They all have their own individual interests, but they also work collectively to resonate off of each other. And it's that resonation of those institutions which have been created with capital and as a result exist past the lives of the people who move through them that is not attended to in the study of American Christianity more broadly and specifically in the context of white evangelicalism. And so we want to shine a light on that to note that evangelical beliefs are not things that are written in stone, nor are they things that have been around for much longer than about 120 years. Nor is their Bible, by the way. Nor is their Bible. Right? <laughs> and so um, so they have a history. It's a short history. It's funded by a lot of money. It could have been done differently. It could have turned out differently. And it could in the future change as well. Yeah. Yeah. I when I try to talk about the history of evangel white evangelicalism now, I I tend I try to tell I try to say that it doesn't go to the 1970s; it goes to the 1870s, <laughs> um, which which you touch on in your book, and that you know, and build upon the work of like Timothy Gloge and Guaranteed Pure and elsewhere about that that sort of shift towards and the the way in which modern consumerism itself rose part and parcel in many ways due to the social effects of white evangelicalism, and they were sort of in conversation with each other throughout all those things. Um, but it was very fascinating to to read that to read to read that portion of of the book and see this particular project as another step and another progression of these wealthy donors and funders and the the access to capital that that this particular this particular group of elites continue to have and continue to use in very significant ways. Jill, go ahead. Oh, I just was going to say that doing that research into the history of white evangelicalism, into American religious history, was in part a result of our change in perspective over time about this museum. And instead of wanting to sort of hold them accountable to an alternate vision of Bible, 
where we were doing public scholarship on the museum and asking the question like, oh, do they get the Bible right? Is it really the Museum of the Bible instead? Or, you know, or is it an evangelical Bible that they're promoting and like trying, but knocking our heads against the wall to try to get people at the museum to see that it was imbricated in evangelicalism? I think I still have scars. Uh, (laughs) So doing this history was a result of of saying like, oh, wait, you know, this museum was it's an institution that is that is founded and funded by white evangelical business owners. This is something that has happened before. Oh, look, it's been happening for 150 years. And so that was sort of what helped us along the way of describing the Bible they produce as a white evangelical Bible because of its production method that had been repeated over and over in this long history of business owners using money in ways to publicize their Bible. Absolutely. So your book goes into detail about a lot of the a lot of the the different exhibits and 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 things that are on display at the Museum of the Bible. And one of the things that that you focus on you detailed various exhibits that that are on display and available for the public to peruse and experience at the Museum of the Bible. There were two that I think would be really interesting to talk about. The first being the presentation of the slave Bible and how that plays into white contemporary white evangelical narratives, as well as the the, the second one being the way in which it tells the story of translation and transmission of the biblical texts from the earliest days to to today. So uh, those are two very distinct parts of the book, but I would love to to hear hear you talk about how both of the ways those things are presented simplify the narrative and also allied the more critical parts of American and evangelical history. Yeah. So there's an exhibit hall on what they call the impact of the Bible floor that is about the Bible in American history. And this artifact, which has been nicknamed the slave Bible, originally was displayed in this exhibit hall, and then was moved for a temporary exhibit for what they called Artifact in Focus, where it became the the central piece of an exhibit in the the basement, which was like a temporary rotating exhibit hall. And the publicity at the time that the Slave Bible exhibit opened was that this was an attempt to rectify what the museum perceived as a problem, which is that there wasn't a whole lot of diversity in the racial makeup of, of the visitors. Um, meaning that it was attracting more white visitors than they wanted. And so this was an attempt to attract more black visitors. And and so, but the the irony here is that the artifact that they chose is a Bible or is an artifact, a book that was produced by white Christians supportive of slavery. Okay. And it was an artifact that was made by white Christians for enslaved Africans in uh, the Caribbean. It's called Parts of the Holy Bible Selected for, and then it has um, the description of the, the recipients. And 
And when we investigated more closely this artifact, both its contents uh, and its circumstances of production, we noticed that there were some things in the museum that were sort of very convenient for authorizing a certain kind of present right now, which is that white evangelicals, like pretty much everybody else in the country, look back on slavery as a really bad thing in the history of the United States, something that they are motivated to disentangle the Bible from um, because they don't want the Bible to be complicit in something that is universally regarded as harmful now. And so what we argue is that the slave Bible exhibit, in addition to how slavery is presented on the Bible in America floor, that ultimately its function is to exculpate the Bible from blame in something that was considered harmful or that is now considered harmful. And one of the ways that that they did this was to send out marketing materials that decried the editing of a Bible, meaning that they were upset that the and they were trying to cultivate this on the part of visitors too, to be upset that a Bible had been manipulated. And the reason they thought it was manipulated is because they said it's a, it was a it was a Bible and then pieces were torn out of it and then it was given to enslaved persons. So like the Exodus is ripped out. Galatians 3.28, where Paul says there is neither slave nor free, ripped out. Um, but when you actually look at the quote the full quotations of of lines that are selectively quoted on the museum walls, what you find is that this was less a project about mutilating a, a Bible and instead choosing particular passages that are relevant for the intended population. So this is an uncomfortable analogy, but it's a little bit like producing a surfer's Bible or a Bible for teenage girls. You know, they were selecting things that were appropriate, considered appropriate for that targeted population. So it was actually more of a curation than a cutting down. And in an interview, the then CEO that was produced, uh, it was named Ken McKenzie, it was on uh, NBC Nightly News. One of the things he commented about that he wanted visitors to take away from this exhibit was, may this never happen again. And you would think that in this context, what you would mean is enslaving people. But actually what it meant, what he meant was to mutilate the Bible. And so rhetorically, what happens in the exhibit in the presentation of this artifact is that a narrative is told that makes it easy for visitors to come in and decry the connection of the Bible with slavery and to say, oh, those people were misusing the Bible. They were editing the Bible. They were doing something wrong. It, and the implication is only if the Bible had been the whole Bible then it would have been obviously good. So it's a way to mark the Bible as the good book, um, which then can it can then be commended as an authoritative moral guide because it is not complicit in slavery. So that's how the museum makes the Bible into the good book by disentangling it from these ethical issues that are now widely settled. And, and we should say that in that in the past, when when the United States was a slaveholding society, the Bible was used often and effectively as a buttressing system for enslaving human beings. Well, it's there way are, easier to argue for slavery from the Bible. It is absolutely <laughs> way easier to argue in favor of slavery than against it. There's mm -hmm. you can do a lot, a lot of work 
to make the Bible in any way critical of enslaving other human beings. Um, and so, so the museum characterizes this as people make the Bible do bad things like support slavery. But when the Bible is allowed to be whole and speak for itself, then it only does good things. Mm. It only brings about good stuff. And and mm. to Jill's point, part of the, the the frustration for the mutilation of the Bible was not necessarily that it also was done in the support in support of slavery, but because the Bible becomes actually the victim that we should be worried about. Like the Bible becomes a victim analogous to the bodies of people who were enslaved, but in some ways more urgently necessary to address. That the Bible, which in this case, if we are right about how this museum functions, the Bible that's being talked about here is a white evangelical Bible, which basically is a way of saying that this is about white evangelicals. When their Bible is seen to be on the wrong side of history or critiqued, it's a critique of their group. When you critique that Bible, you critique them as people. And it plays into larger persecution narratives that evangelicals cultivate in their in their discourse. We argue that one of the functions of this exhibit was to make, I don't think we say it this starkly, but I'll paraphrase, was to make white evangelicals feel better about using the Bible as a moral guide. It's to make them feel good about a book that they are making good as what we consider good is a moving target. So, so you asked as well about the about translation. Mm-hmm. So uh, that moves us to it to a, a different floor, to the floor that is called the it's called the history of the Bible floor, and that's the floor where a lot of the artifacts about of, from biblical history are are presented. These are the things that got the museum in trouble on a lot of fronts for their uh, curatorial curate uh, uh, curate. Curatorial. For their curating, curatorial, <laughs> um, and acquisition practices. Okay, um, so we, we we sat on this. We 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 went over this floor over and over again. It's a strange floor. It's a floor that that you would think would be sort of like, how did we get the Bible? How was the Bible? How did biblical texts get written? Who wrote them? And how did they uh, collect them? How did they put them together? And how was how, what a you know. You would think that's the story that they would tell. And what you get when you get to the history of the Bible floor is you get an, you, kind of the, the description of the floor is that it's the path to universal access. And Jill has a great way of, of, of talking about this, which is that like access is something that requ- to care about universal access is to, is to assume that the thing that you want to give access to is good. So... There's already been this work to to present to you a notion that the Bible is always good when left to itself. And so it's like water. You want to give people universal access to water. You don't really care about giving people universal access to cigarettes, right? Like that's not, we don't fight public policy battles about giving people universal access to cigarettes, at least not mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, maybe in the <laughs> century we did. But, I think what um, I said was herpes. You don't want to give right, universal right. access to herpes. Herpes. There you go. Yeah, that's that's better. I should. I, I need to stick with your example. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't go off script. There we go. Um, so, um, so it's this path. So, so what does it mean to have a path to universal access? So, the the the, the exhibit starts with the invention of writing as the beginning of the history of the Bible, and writing it, as 
in, in terms of historical development is many, many centuries before any biblical texts are ever produced. So why would you start with the invention of writing? And one of the things that, that we ended up coming to figure out as we worked through this floor is that the floor is really not so much a history of the Bible as it is a history of technologies of communication, which is to say, how do we answer the problem of getting the the Bible from being a pre-existent divine word, something that exists in the mind of a non-visible entity? How does it get into history? And how do you transmit that faithfully and reliably over the course of human history so that eventually everybody has access to the thoughts of this invisible deity? But they can't say God it in sounds, the museum. Yeah, right. it sounds like Spaceship Earth at Epcot. <laughs> <laughs> because that is also a, essentially a history of communication. <laughs> okay. yeah. Oh, man, um, I should have gotten research funding to go to Disney World instead. You know, what were we thinking? We could have we pitched that. that yeah, great. Spaceship Earth is the ride <laughs> inside the Epcot geodesic dome looking thing. <laughs> but it, but I mean it 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 feels like when I was reading it reading your description of of this particular exhibit it totally evoked that because it it essentially starts with with you know models of cavemen telling stories around a fire to spaceships you know and and the progression to digital media and what we have now and it's a, it was fascinating to read that that is how they're presenting they're presenting the the Bible as essentially part and parcel or you know the the culmination of of humani humanity's communicative technologies. I mean it does make sense because evangelicals as a group have always been early adopters in sort of the modern era. You know, look at fundamentalist radio preachers and 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 the book market and every single place they're always there to you know tiktokers now so they're always they're they're always there <laughs> but but it was really fascinating to read that this was how they were how they were positioning the transmission of the bible and and it also seemed to be the case that they essentially skipped straight forward to gutenberg or like they they had a lot of a lot of assumptions of like the bible not even though it was hand copied for millennia, not really having many errors <laughs> or, or which just seems to be a pretty easy bias to address, just given that historically that was not the case until, until the printing press in the 14th and 15th century. <laughs> yeah. There, there are a couple of interactive exhibits where you get to play a scribe and you're either, instead of writing, you're either tracing letters that are underneath what you're supposed to write, which is obviously not how ancient scribes were copying text. They, they weren't able to trace. And then there's also a digital one that you use your finger on a computer screen, and it's electronic policing of making sure that you copy it correctly. And so there's these interactives where your body is conscripted into accurate reproduction of the text. And ultimately, what that does is it makes the Bible reliable, right? So it's a good book, and it's also reliable in the sense that we have it as God intended us to have it. But they can't say God in the museum because they're making a bid to historical respectability uh, and academic respectability. So that can't be the explanation, which is in some in some ways what makes an examination of this floor so interesting, because it's a little bit like, 
how do they present the Bible as the word of God that is reliable without talking about God? And one of the ways they do it is through translation. That's what you originally asked about, right? Yeah. And then it then that that same sort of effect seems to be carried over into some of the more interactive spaces. And you talk about this in that and use the, the term transmedial, that the, the Bible presented at the Museum of the Bible is transmedial, even though there is this heavy emphasis on text. There's also a ton of interactive elements. There are actors involved. There are things like that. And then the sort of environment of the Bible is that heard or watched just as much as it's read. And it definitely made me think of the way in which like when I sort of recall how I how I experienced experienced the Bible and religion prior to, you know, going to college and beginning to study it in that sort of way, it was experiential first and foremost. And I went to a Wesleyan school, so the Wesleyan quadrilateral mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. Like like tra- experience is where we all sort of start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- they are definitely evoking a particular type of experience in these spaces. Could you talk about uh, a little bit about some of these more interactive elements and what is being what is being evoked? the the most interactive floor is the is the museum's third floor which kind of is the place where if you if you had not ever read the bible before is is basically the only place in the museum where you're going to get content you like bible content and so the 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 other the other exhibit floors kind of just talk about the bible as a something that impacts history or as the kind of the the history of its transmission and so the narrative floor is supposed to kind of give you what you need to know about the Bible. And it does so with three major exhibits, one of which is, is we would call the Hebrew Bible exhibit, but it, it purports to be the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, the Old Testament, the knock. Um, and so like it, it, it already kind of conflates a whole bunch of different organizations of those texts um, and translations of those texts together into one exhibit. And that's an exhibit where you walk through stories from the Hebrew Bible and you experience them in projections on the wall, in sculptures that that fill rooms, in doors that open and steam that pops up and (laughs) narration from... I think it's fog for the record. Steam fog. I mean... (laughs) I'm sorry. I mean, it's it it is quite affecting. It is. I mean, you feel you feel you 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 are embodied in that place, and it and it is. Some of it is quite beautiful. You kind of walk through the parting of the Red Sea as well. The 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 whole story is narrated by, as you come to find out, spoilers by by Ezra narrating the story (laughs) of the Hebrew Bible that culminates. Major spoiler, actually. No. (laughs) <laughs> the museum has been open for five years so spoilers <laughs> for a five-year-old museum <laughs> um, so, and and so so that we as we went through that over and over again we went through it quite a, quite a number of times we we started to see we started to get this we started to figure out that part of what stitches is all together is a story and the story is that humanity and its beginnings was separated from God and that eventually God would reconcile that separation, which is not really how Jewish communities tend to read their Bible, but it is how 
Protestant Christians read theirs. And the Hebrew Bible exhibit culminates with the return of the Israelites to the, to the land of Israel after the Babylonian exile. So it stops the story there and leaves unaddressed the question of humanity's disconnection from God. And so when you leave that exhibit, you're then offered two other, two other options. You can go and watch a movie about the New Testament, which is frankly, a, just a real mess of a movie, or you can go and walk through the a reconstructed first century Nazareth village called the World of Jesus of Nazareth. So your your options when you leave the Hebrew Bible exhibit are Christian in orientation. You don't get to go and like learn about the history of, of, of Judaism that, that proceeds through the Mishnah and the Talmud to contemporary forms of Judaism that also venerate the Bible and use it. You don't get to follow Joseph Smith anywhere on creating additions to, to the to the Bible in that direction, you end up going to a place where, you know, you, you get Jesus either way. But you don't really get Jesus because in the the Nazareth village, you find a whole bunch of actors playing ancient Jews in a, re in a reconstructed Disneyland kind of experience of a first century synagogue uh, as first century village. And no one, Jesus is not there, but everybody is scripted to tell you to look for Jesus. And you're looking for Jesus in the reconstructed artifacts that are there that signal how they were connected to things that Jesus might have said. Um, you look for Jesus in the stories that are told about how he confounded the people that live in this village. And you're you're told that he's elsewhere, but you're in that as you're searching for him, you're kind of constricted into the search for him and you're kind of feeling connected to that world. And in some ways, you're also feeling connected to a kind of fantasy version of the land of Israel, which itself has a resonance in, in contemporary politics um, for evangelical Christians. And I'm going to skip aside for a second, say that there's another exhibit that's interactive where you have a you have a, a kind of a thrill ride roller coaster experience of finding and being shown biblical verses inscribed on monuments in Washington DC and you put those two those two exhibits together and you get you get this sort of fusion of horizons between Washington DC as a kind of Christian nationalist sacred space where the bible has been inscribed in the landscape since its founding and also a feeling of connection to the land of Israel so you get a kind of conversion of sacralities between a kind of Christian zionist and a Christian nationalist worldview yeah, so that, that so was upsetting. <laughs> that was upsetting to read. <laughs> but you you can't find Jesus in this Galilean village because for white evangelicals, it's not like the historical Jewish dude in the first century that they're wanting to cultivate a connection with, right? It's a post-resurrectional Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. And, and so one of the things we argue is that there is in the museum, this, this sort of pilgrimage experience where it's asking its visitors to want Jesus, to look for Jesus, but you only will find him outside, right? You don't find like the physical person of Jesus in the museum. And the only depiction of him in the permanent exhibits that we saw is a very bright white Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane post-resurrection that is in a stained glass window that was once in a cathedral. So it's sort of cultivating what we describe as a religious experience, this religious pilgrimage where you're looking for Jesus and you find the risen Christ. Mm -hmm. Who's also white. Who's yeah. also white. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. true. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. White. That's a sarcastic awesome. <laughs> Just to be clear. Well, he is white in the museum. 
that part's just true. <laughs> you know, one of the reviews, one of the reviews of our book that came, I think it was the publisher's weekly review, it said that that our take on the museum was scathing. And I have been thinking about this ever since because I'm thinking you say scathing and I say descriptive. <laughs> mm. In the Museum of the Bible, Jesus is white is a description of the Jesus that is in there. Mm-hmm. Right. And and as yeah. you've said before, Jill, I've heard or at least I've heard you say that if if you think that that description is scathing, then that's your problem. Well, what does it tell you about <laughs> what <Right>. you think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. yeah. And I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize your text by any stretch as polemical or by like you you say definitive things but they're not they're not intended to evoke you know it's not provocative for the sake of provocation i will (laughs) that is not the read i i that is not what i i found in the text i'm really Uh, glad to hear that (laughs) that's what twitter's for (laughs) that's That's exactly right that's exactly right put the takes on put the takes on twitter um i I really appreciated this this conversation. There's a, a whole other section that that folks should pick up the book to read about how about how this museum and the entire the entire project is a way of legitimizing through social capital. Trent, you have a very good part about how this is transmuting financial capital into social capital, which is which is really valuable. But I. Instead of getting into that, I will tell people to pick up the book. I w- what I would like, what I what I would really like to sort of close out is just with another hypothetical. We sort of t- started this conversation about talking about how the Bible exists in this sort of realm of imagination. So I'm going to ask the two of you to describe it in the realm of your imaginations what a, what an imagined museum uh, alternative. Im- Museum of the Bible would look like. What type of exhibits, what type of things would you include if you were if you were entrusted with this level of financial capital to create a public space to educate people and inform people about the Bible or Bibles? I'd be very curious to hear what what sort of things you would you would highlight about this hypothetical museum of the Bible. <laughs> so I'm going to channel Kevin for a second. Since you've been quoting me, I'm going to quote you. His response to this question a while ago was nobody asked for this museum. <laughs> <laughs> because they, they like the, the people who were, the biblical scholars who were involved in the museum were behaving as though the museum was owed our expertise to make it better, that critique <laughs> to make this museum better. And we really, you know, we, we want to resist that idea because the very con, in part because the very con, nobody asked for the museum, but also museums are problematic types of institutions that are capitalizing, capturing and capitalizing on other people's heritage and presenting it to certify particular presence which I just ethically think is problematic, even as I am also like, you know, a white woman snob who likes to visit museums. (laughs) So I actually had my students at OU 
build alternative exhibits using the Museum of the Bible as a jumping off point for having them materialize lessons that they had learned about the Bible in the class. And I actually think that some of their solutions to problems that they perceived in the Museum of the Bible were pretty brilliant. So I will mention one while not taking credit for it and also strategically not answering the question I was asked. One of the things they did was to um, re-script the Hebrew Bible Old Testament exhibit. And what they suggested was to have people go through the exhibit three times and that you would have on headphones so that you get a different narration each time. And one would be Mm. a narration of the Tanakh so that people gained a sense of how Jews tend to read the sacred set of texts. One would be a narration of the Christian Old Testament, and one would be a narration that reflected historical critical scholarship, which was in general what they were encountering in the classroom. And I thought that that was just, you know, I a cool idea for how to address the idea that the Hebrew Bible is not one thing because different communities receive it and study it and think of it differently. So that would be kind of cool. Oh, also, sorry, one more thing. I once told the CEO that to fix the Christian supersessionism in the museum, they would need to rip out the Jesus of Nazareth section, the like Galilean village, and instead put a an exhibit about rabbinic Judaism and the Talmud, which is like functionally, historically analogous to the New Testament and Christianity within rabbinic Judaism. And the look on his face, I have to tell you, that would have cost some dollars. He was not excited about that. That was my (laughs) other fix for it. (laughs) I think, I think that, yeah, uh, Jill's right that, that, that my response to this museum has largely been like, no, I did not want this. No, (laughs) the only reason you want a museum of the Bible is to claim power over the Bible and to Mm. use that for whatever you think of as good ends. Um, I mean, I think that I think that at the end of the day, like the example that Jill students come up with really gets at the heart of what is at issue here, which is that there if there is no Bible, there are just there are just contestations over biblical meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uses of biblical literature at different times and places. And I think in some sense, the classroom is better for this than in, than a museum, which is to say that, people sitting together looking at the same printed text interpreted in a myriad of different ways and recognizing like that there are ethical obligations uh, that come with how one interprets and that there also are no rules in a sense for how one interprets and dwelling on the multiplicity of interpretations and the 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 ethics that are involved in those interpretations, the political context, the social context, the cultural context in which those interpretations take place, the asymmetrical power relationships that determine what are acceptable and what are unacceptable ways of interpreting at different times and places. Like that you can't really do in a museum. You can do it in a classroom. You can do it together with other human beings. Then in some sense, like the 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 way to, I think, to to think about how to ethically engage with the Bible is to do so in the context of talking with other people and not necessarily walking through a sterile museum and passively being given information from from placards and and signage. And Um, we're conscripted into it bodily. mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Right. Uh, That's a good way to put it, Kevin. And that's a 
just to be clear that that was a totally the I would rather not is totally like a, a valid <laughs> a valid response to that question. Well, are mean, you going to visit the an, museum, Blake? Um, the next time I'm in D.C., I might make a point to go just to experience yeah. it for myself. I'm not thrilled about the fact that, you know, there's there's uh, a fee uh, that seems to be variable. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but, um, we'll put you on our family membership. <laughs> okay. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with me about your book. Um, I will absolutely make sure to, to link everything in my, in the show notes. Is there anything else that either of you would like to mention or, or plug here at the end of our conversation? Well, everybody should also buy Kevin's most recent book, Profaning Paul, which he mentioned earlier at the beginning of the conversation, which I will say because I didn't know if he was going to. Um, <laughs> I should also say that everyone should be ready to buy Jill's next book, which will be called Good Book and How the Even How Even How White Evangelicals Save the Bible to Save Themselves. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, well, Jill, Kevin, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Blake. Thank you so much time. for having us.